0: friends welcome to the redeemer queens park podcast redeemer exists to help connect jesus to people people to community and community to mission we're gathering on saturdays at 3 p.m to worship god and fellowship if you ever have any questions or if we could be of help in any way at all then please give us a shout at hello at RedeemerQP.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Well, how many of you feel rested? Let's see one hand. Maybe two, three of you thought about it. Yeah, but we, uh, There might be different reasons for not feeling rested. Um, I had the great privilege, I'm going to call it a privilege, uh, to be a part of the midnight bus last night. In uh, 24 hours of prayer, uh, 12 p.m. up to the 6 a.m. shift. Where are we? Yeah, 12 a.m. I'm, it's going to be remarkable if anything good happens while I stand here. How tired I am right now. Um, six hours through the night. Who's in that crew? Tywo, Gil, few right here. Beautiful. Um, there might be reason for not feeling rested if we uh, stayed up. might be reasons for not feeling rested depending on what happened this last week. Might also be reasons for not feeling rested uh, just based on the overall general pattern and tone of life right now, right? But uh, what happens next is uh, an invitation. This is the whole thing that I bring you now is an invitation. This is an invitation to the tired. This is an invitation to the weary. This is an invitation to anyone in need of life. Let's think about how we got so jammed up. The world has sped up. Think about the clock. Should have one on the screen, but didn't think about it until right now. So just imagine a clock. Clock was invented by monks to organize the hours of prayer in monasteries. 1370 is the date that most people agreed when the first public clock was erected, right? So imagine Elizabeth Tower with Big Ben inside, right? 1370 was the first time something like that happened. And in 1370, when that happened, this operated a shift in our consciousness with the relationship to time. Think about it. Before 1370, um, if the sun's up, I don't know, maybe we get out, we go around, we do some stuff, and the sun's down, and electricity hasn't hit yet, so there's definitely not any Wi-Fi. We have a few candles that someone made in a barn, so how long do you want to burn that until we just kind of blow that out and go to sleep, right? Right? But well, then when the clock is there, well, it changes the way we think about the very, the very concept of time. Before that, everything was natural. Just set by the rotation of the earth where you lived in the world, you'd sleep based on when the sun was up and the sun was down. 1879, a guy named Edison created the light bulb which cut our sleep way back. Think about this. Back then, the average person in Western culture... Slept an average of 11 hours a night. Give me some of this. You know, take me back to that time. Let me get on some of that. 11 hours? I could do it with 11 hours right now. Probably after not that grande drink I just pounded. But that was, that was 150 years ago. Getting 11 hours of sleep. Some tired parents in the room. Can you imagine how you would feel if you got 11 hours of sleep? Some I mean, I'll just take just half of that right now. We're with you. 2007 the the next most important developed force it's um, it's this guy right here it's the the iPhone so we're all walking around carrying in our pockets more technology than was on the first space shuttle that landed some people on the moon they walked around they got on it they came home there's more tech in this than in all of that And we're walking around with the world in our pockets, clocks on our wrists, and we're feeling sped up. Now, this one blew my mind. Um, It's estimated that people check their phones, (laughs) you're not going to believe me, 2,716 times a day. It's estimated we spend 76 sessions on our phones 76 sessions on our phone in a day. Now, this will level the room right here. Um, That's kind of like the the general public. Then they tested young adults. I don't know, like, how many of us are in this number, but they tested young adults. Some of you can exclude yourselves here. 85 sessions on the phone, averaging five-plus hours a day. Psychologists widely agree. that our behavior with our phones could be classified as compulsion, potentially even obsessive compulsive. Words addiction or addict um, aren't much of a reach to describe how many of us, including the guy standing right in front of you, um, handles his phone. So not you. Cut your phone off for 24 hours and see how that goes. (laughs) And 12 hours in, We're itching. I mean, maybe if you slept for 11, you woke up for one. You had one hour without your phone. um, Technology started to change our relationship with time. Different labor-saving devices come in, and what we feel is I actually don't have more time. I'm actually just kind of switched on, and I'm occupied more of the time. Now, I'm not going to give you a sermon in favor of digital asceticism, right? I'm not, I'm not there personally. I don't think the Bible leads you to that. I don't think you can be a witness in Western culture and kind of go all the way there. But here's some commentary. This is Ronald Rollheiser. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. He goes on, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. He continues pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. And I don't know if we can really argue against it. Something's deeply wrong in our culture around us, and it presses in on us as followers of the Lord Jesus on every side. The world in which we live is sick with hurry, lacking priorities. We're trying to pack too much into the little bit that we have. And the results are the lives that we have. The results are found out in the morning needing a certain amount of uppers to get up and get going and in the evening needing a certain amount of downers to come down from it all to press reset for a few hours in bed and to go again. It's not just the world around us, right? This isn't some moment where we got together today and we're like, oh man, we are just like passive victims of what's happening in our culture. No, 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 like it's it's within us as well. Overwork might be our great problem. Overwork. Healthcare professionals say that overwork is one of the prime contributions, contributions to the most prevalent medical ailments of our society, including heart disease, certain cancers, accidental injuries, cirrhosis of the liver, just to name a few. One study, one study conducted by CNN, that's a news outlet, uh, concluded people who work 11-hour days are 250% more likely to become depressed than to those who limit their work to 8-hour days. 250% more likely to become depressed. And when you consider the, the 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 amount of stress that our bodies go under when we do different sorts of work, I think and in, There's nothing to say it's like, oh, it's only these vocations, but not these. No, it's just something about being switched on for a prolonged period of time. Certain chemicals get released into our body. Certain hormones get released into our body, which is fine if you have plenty of time to sleep, which you could do for a day or two in like a busy season. But throwing our levels to to those extremes, it leads to more anxiety and more depression. Some of us can't help it. We we simply need to work and there's hours that get set for us. But think about why we actually go to work. Some of us go to work to provide for ourselves. There are things that we want. We go to work to be able to access those things. But come on, we're in London, right? And many of us ended up in London away from somewhere we were because there's something that even drove us to this place to to live and to work. Oftentimes, work is actually connected with our identity, because our worth gets connected to this. Think about the second most popular question right after, like, what's your name? It's, what do you do? What do you do? Who are you? Not where, not, not where are you from? Not what are you into? Not how do you rest? But what do you do? Here, here's the invitation, right? I mean, it's, it's clear. That's the problem. That's some context. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Let's hear him afresh. Come to me. You hear him? You hear him saying that with 86 phone sessions in a day, five plus hours on the phone? Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A lot of Christians think Christianity means getting busy for Jesus. If we're not careful, us as a new church community, we could, we, could, we could slip into this rut. It's like, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? It's like, oh, I, I love my neighbor. I serve. I run around town. I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. I'm going to meetings. Look at me. I'm a busy Christian. Don't get me wrong. Like, Not only pastor in a church, we're trying, to, we're trying to lead a movement of the gospel in this city. It's going to take Energy. It's going to take some serious output. It's going to take some running around, some coordinating of plans, some gathering of meetings and resources. But all of our work for Jesus ought to be rooted in our rest in Jesus, right? And if the things we're doing for Him outwardly aren't coming from roots that are actually sitting down into Him and depending on Him, we have to wonder what will the quality of this fruit actually be? Eugene Peterson, um, American pastor, theologian guy, um, translated the whole Bible in his morning devotional time. Right? He, would, uh, he would spend two to three hours um, sitting at his desk first thing in the morning, reading the Greek, reading the Hebrew, getting into a little bit of the Aramaic when necessary amongst the Greek, and prayerfully translating the whole thing over from the original languages to like modern Western culture English. That is called the message, paraphrase or translation of the Bible. And I think he absolutely smoked it at Matthew 11. Here's here's how he says it. We'll go slow. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Here's the invitation. He says, come to me Think about it. We've been studying the way of Jesus. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. So walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Oh, souls just go out to this. And this is an invitation. Invitation for the tired. Invitation for the worn down, the beat down, the over busy. The people who are always late with their Christmas presents. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I should be looking at myself, but it's an invitation the vast majority of us live with some sort of low grade anxiety that never goes away because of all the things that we need to do, but we can't seem to get it done. So, how do we move from a place where we look a lot like our culture, a lot like the setting that God put us in when we're affected by busyness, when we carry a lot, when Maybe our neighbor has 86 phone sessions and we're just running 80. Like, how can we get a bigger spread here? How can we find a larger gap? How can there be more distinction that separates a follower of Jesus from everyone else in town? That's what we're into. Now, Matthew is writing specifically for Jewish Christians. Um, The guy writing this is one of three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are these biographical accounts of Jesus' life. They're all written uh, for specific audiences. And Matthew is setting up here writing for people coming from a Jewish background. And he's intending to show these people, this is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah of God. So he's driving after it and he's going for it. And later on in his gospel, he's constantly countering the teacher of the religious leaders of the day. and and, And Jesus, who is a rabbi... Jesus, who would have showed up inviting people to follow him, come train under me, come spend some time with me, come just camp with me, like watch how I eat scrambled eggs in the morning, like watch how I listen to somebody who's annoying, like watch how I have a conversation with you, like this is what rabbis would do, just come be with me and you'll pick up my version of rabbi, right? So that's what Jesus is doing, and Jesus has something to say for the other religious teachers or rabbis of the day. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, talking of them, he says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So part of what this means in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, is Jesus is saying, everybody's going to have to carry a yoke. Everybody's studying and training under someone. And Jesus is saying, come to me because I have an easy way to do this. Jesus is saying there's religious teachers out there, there's going to be other systems, there's going to be other gurus, that their way, their method is going to be heavy. It's going to be cumbersome. And that's even driven by rabbis that aren't willing to put in the work themselves. Jesus knows it differently. So think about this. The most mature in Jesus are not those people who are necessarily working hardest for him but they're the people who are resting the most in him that's what he's inviting us into what he's inviting me into is your pastor that's what he's inviting us into as a people so three weeks ago we're really considering i mean it's it's epiphany season We, we did advent leading up to christmas It's Epiphany season. We're in between Christmas and Easter. It's when you just behold Jesus. You think about Jesus. You return to Jesus. You look to Jesus. And then you get into Lent and you really celebrate the cross of Christ for a couple of weeks. This is the season we're in. This is our spiritual season. It marks us differently than everybody else around us. And three weeks ago in this Epiphany season, we considered two ways to live. Two weeks ago, we considered Jesus and the invitation to abide in the secret place. One week ago, we considered more about the secret place in prayer, and here today, we have an easy yoke. He offers an easy yoke, and you have to be yoked to someone. No one gets to run around unyoked. We're all gonna be hooked up to another who's gonna lead us around. Dallas Willard says this, and in this truth lies the secret of an easy yoke. The secret involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life. Adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps, cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did in all of his life. Here's, here, here's, here, here's, here's what I'm saying. And here's another illustration that's not on the screen, but it was in my head. And I just, you know, sometimes you just, I couldn't get there. So um, you ever seen one of those uh, WWJD bracelets? Yeah? I, I not only saw one, had a, had a few, like I don't, three or four at a time, and I mean, they, they were a good thing, right? I mean, they came across. That's a good thing. It's like, what would Jesus do, in whatever situation you're in? You know, your brother's yelling in your face. You want to like rail off and just smack him? You're like, what would Jesus do? Ugh, you know, like that's how the bracelet worked. But the problem with that, according to Willard right here, is that's just accessing some type of paradigm when, when you, only when you need to make a decision. What would Jesus do? Oh, I haven't been thinking like that. Let me kind of step away from my normal way of operating, access this. Oh. What Willard is inviting us into is following in his steps. You see, friends, to have the life of Jesus, we have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. We're not going to be the kind of people that are able to instinctively respond how he would respond unless we're actually living in his forms and his rhythms. So yes, we want to be able to like have a conversation at work like Jesus. Man, that was fast. You guys are on fire and sleep deprived. Look at this. This is a high quality experience, everybody. I'm loving this. have the life of Jesus in us, we have to have a life that's patterned after him, though, don't we? There's going to be no, like, up and out, being bold and courageous with a co-worker to share the gospel. Somebody's talking about their depression, talking about how hard life, life is. January, February, we're not that bad for you. You're going to meet somebody, and they're just, like, absolutely, like, in the dumps about how bad it's been. And there's going to be no just like up and out, oh, I'm all of a sudden just full of encouragement. I've been living like the way of the world, but now like on the spot, let me kind of do my Jesus thing with you for a moment. And we kind of switch back over here. It's like, no, the way to have the life of Jesus is to have the lifestyle of Jesus. So Jesus is inviting us. Come on, you got to get in this with me. He invites us to a yoke, a work instrument where he's going to have the inside of this. He's going to do the hardest part. He's going to have you over here. So I don't know what it's called when you have like the motorcycle and you have the little like cabby thing out here where that person's just like praying the whole time, wearing a little helmet. Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of like that. Jesus is like, I'm going to drive. I'm going to be in control. Just roll with me. That's what he's inviting us to so if we're honest, though, we hear all of this even here. And if we're not careful, even this, even talking about this thing just sounds like another thing. Talking about this just sounds like another weight we have to take on. Hearing this, it's like, oh, great. Now i got to like optimize this into my life as well. But like, let's, let's press into that just a little bit. A, a yoke was always brought together to tie two animals together. And when Jesus is talking... Like us as modern listeners, we're, we're thinking to ourselves, people are tired, people are weary, people need rest. I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, follow me. I have the cheat codes to the holidays in Greece. You know, it's like, follow me. I know where they sell cheap mattresses. You know, like, follow me. Like, I've got coupons, right? And we're thinking, like, where is he going to go with this? And he says, come to me because I got an easy way to do it an easy way to do it, friends. Jesus is saying, come alongside of me. So think what this is going to require of us. On the phone all the time, all the sessions. I forget what I told you a minute ago. All the opportunity, all the access, all the information. Think about what this will start to require of us, though. If we're going to be yoked to Jesus, we're going to have to find the pace of Jesus and walk with Jesus. So Jesus is saying, "You, you want life? You want to be able to do this stuff? You're going to have to start walking at my speed. It's going to be okay. We're going to be beside him. We're not going to have to wonder where this is going to be, but we have to get beside him, and we have to walk with him. The hardest way to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, someone who says they're a follower of Jesus, lives like the world, but tries to like work the Christianity into living like the world the hardest way to do it Jesus is saying just take the yoke just come all the way into this with me so when we think about it to take the to take the yoke and to slow down leads us to think like what kind of life did Jesus live and before that let's just make this relevant like what would the friends and family in this room the people who know you best like how would they describe your pace of life There's lots of ways to describe it, like this one's in a hurry, Um, this one's never in a hurry, you know, like this one is trying to do too much, or this one is trying to do too little. Um, This one knows exactly where that one's going, Um, this one, I I don't think they know where they're going, right? So how would somebody describe your pace of life? Because then we reflect from us, like full of the problems, full of the dysfunction, full of the hurry, full of the aimlessness, and we look to Jesus. There was something about Jesus where we get the sense he was always in the moment. Doesn't he strike you as someone who's always in the moment? He was interruptible. Someone comes to him, come on, my daughter's sick, he's on the way with someone. Somebody grabs the edge of his jacket and he's able to turn around and say, let's talk. What? I mean, try interrupting me halfway through an email. You know, like how interruptible are you? Jesus was incredibly interruptible, yet he was determined. There was an overall arc and shape to his life where it was going somewhere. Mark says there was a moment when he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and no one could take him off track. He lived on purpose, but never in a hurry to get there. His schedule was full, to the brim at times, yet he never seemed to be out of sorts with all he had going on. He didn't have a dopamine addiction to an iPhone, like many of us do. He managed to live with margin. He knew where his limits were, and he knew how to protect them and not let them get beyond for lots of us, there's no space between the load and the limit. They just live matched up the whole time. Japanese theologian, Kusika Kouma says, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, then it would have gone much faster, but love has a speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed which we were accustomed. It is slow, yet it is lord over all the other speed because it's the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our lives, whether we notice it or not, whether we are currently hit by a storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore it is the speed that the love of God walks. He actually has a book um, called Three Mile an Hour God where he talks about how love has a speed. You think any any relationship of love, think how that thing takes a lot of time and it's just overall not in a hurry. Think about how God taught his people lessons in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you something. It's like, great, I could do with a quick download. He's like, so 40 years over here. And us in our world today, we're like, how cruel. But God is like, I have some things that are only going to be worked out with time. And our Jesus says to us, if you want my life, you're going to have to have my lifestyle. And it feels like such a challenge for us. Part of the reason it feels like such a challenge is because of the third soil. Hear what Jesus had to say about this. The third soil comes along. It's a parable Jesus used to talk about the different kinds of hearts that are out there, different ways that people respond Jesus said the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out the word, making it unfruitful. The third soil, so much of London. Our Lord is saying to us, be sure your faith doesn't get choked out because of all this other stuff. The things that overwhelm us and rob us of intimacy and fruitfulness, they don't manifest themselves as grave threats against our identity. They just show up in our diaries as life. And they show up in the warmer months as, you know, a day away, a weekend away, a week away. They show up as season four of Just Dropped, listening to our neighbors relentlessly, constantly checking social media, a third soil. And Jesus brings it up to say, be on guard against this. Be sure this doesn't choke the life out of you. Be sure this doesn't strangulate your walk with me. I think this is where it's almost it's almost helpful. Like we can't look around the room here and just measure each other. You know somebody that works 10 to 15 hours more than you. You don't know how much they're compulsively checking Instagram though. Like it's possible to have a life that's just shaped like that, but they might have these other things in order. You might work 20 or 30 hours a week, but you you can't go to the toilet without checking your phone, right? So I mean, there's, no, there's no judging one another, putting each other in boxes today. It's us and him. And we're all equal before him. And he's looking at us saying, you got to be careful. There's some things here. You're going to be yoked to some different, stu- different stuff. And the overall point here is, how's it going? Are we full of love? Are we just kind of busy with distraction like everyone else around us? So let me, let, me, let me try to move this. Think about Jesus. Think about him. Think about him. He, he, he seemed to be walking everywhere, not running. Um, he seemed to have long meals often. He, he seemed to have space for in-depth connections and conversations. He practiced the Sabbath every single week. He was into simplicity before simplicity was a vibe. He was into minimalism before what's-her-name showed up. Right. I mean, it's Jesus. He's kind of got like a cloak and a tunic and some Birkenstocks. And he's like, where are we eating? You know, Um, multiple times in the Gospels, they had to wake him up for stuff. You know, get me some of this 11 hour Jesus, you know, constantly having to wake him up. Um, There's a storm now. If you want to get up, we're over here now. Right. Just depending on the father. Resting, sleeping, eating, walking, and accomplishing a whole lot of good stuff. So two questions we can ask about Jesus in our lives to figure out what this would look like. First, we could ask the question, so how would Jesus live if he were here? How would Jesus do 2023 London? Now you're gonna have to extrapolate just a little bit, okay? Because Jesus was a single man living in the first century and he was a Jewish rabbi. So you gotta kind of, Think a little bit here. You have to ideate. You have to transpose just a little. How would Jesus do husband, pastor, church planter in London? How how would he handle that? That's that's what I have to ask. That's what I've been looking at and thinking about this week. Here's one. How would Jesus handle being a single woman who runs a high-performing job in London? Hold on. Let me just think. Let me think about what I know. How would Jesus handle that? Let's think pace. How would Jesus move through this? You're working on a big money deal, and you're thinking, how would Jesus work on a big money deal? What would be the things that marked him? What would be the things that define him? What would show up in his life? What wouldn't be present if Jesus were solving a big money deal? For many of us to have anything like that, inevitably in some category it involves some slowing down. Let's do this other one. How would Jesus plan a week if he were here? How would Jesus do a week in February 2023 London? Just imagine, you know, he's like rolling through the session, wondering what this guy's doing with the sermon. And then he's like moving on to pizza and salad after this with a few of you. And then he's like setting it up on Sunday. How would Jesus probably lay out a week in 2023 London? You can just imagine, whatever his thing is, if he's the paper guy or the calendar or the block schedule guy, like whatever whatever the thing is, how would he do it? You got to imagine, first things would come first. He would understand his soul is incredibly important. So he's probably thinking, I'm going to have to maintain this thing first. So he puts those blocks in. And then he's thinking, I am a person in relationship. I've got to make sure a few relationships happen this week. Or nothing else matters the so family a few friends coming in here things thinking I'm I'm gonna have to sleep you know I like some sleep so um booking in the sleep you can imagine exercise coming in you can imagine margin you can imagine time to be excellent in his work H- how are we doing how are we doing if we feel like we could use some hacks and some helps here they are how to find the pace of Jesus just a couple of encouragements for us then yeah And then maybe one more word from this one, and we're singing. Number one, Sabbath. If we're not practicing a Sabbath, we're not going to make it very far. And if you're making it far, there's not going to be lasting fruit. We have to Sabbath. To get through this thing, we have to Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from a word which literally means to cease or to stop. And it's something I didn't learn until I was into pastoral ministry over my head with problems and stresses and frustrations. I'm just like, I gotta step away from this thing once a day. Like sometimes the Lord just takes you into the deep end to teach you to swim. We have to learn to Sabbath. Commanded for the good of humanity in Genesis chapter two, verses one through three, given again in Exodus chapter 20, verses eight through 10. And Carl Hunray says it like this, the problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time has gone too far. It's turned into an addiction, actually, a kind of idolatry. We have to Sabbath. We have to start shaping our lives like Jesus would have shaped his life in 2023 London. We have to start building this thing in to say, I can walk away from it for a day. And the humility that teaches us when we step aside and it's like, you know, I can, I, I'll interact with like some of you on like the friendship level, but I'm also like not opening up the documents and starting the research and doing those things. I just got to step aside from it for a day. And you can step aside from it as well. I want to be realistic. If that feels like too much of a, a mountain to climb right now, then you think, I can, I can do half a day. Like my first month, I can do half a day. And if that's too much, you can think, I can go quarter of a day and repent my way through it and then get to half a day and then get to a full day. What would this look like for you? I'm going to be very practical with you. One day a week, not to do it. I'll be unplug, no office, more sleep, Bible, read, read, read leisurely, pray, play, be with people. If that's your thing, just be away from people if that's your thing. And what you'll find is that it actually empowers the other six days of the week with something that you cannot get from another cup of coffee, another Adderall, another upper, downer, or thrill. It's Sabbath. It's getting away from it for one day will infuse the other six with a power and a priority like nothing else. Next, uh, Newbegin, I got to work it in. Newbegin said, we're, we're driven away by every gust of enthusiasm. And when we take a Sabbath, we boycott human compulsivity. So I'm not going to do it. I'm just taking a day away from it. I am not doing the rat race today. And we rest. You show back up the next day and people are looking at you like, what'd you do? I took a Sabbath. Next thing, secret time with God. Secret place in the morning, a pause before re-engaging in the evening. Find these ways to to reset. Um, Many of you know me well. I'm not a morning person, but I'm cultivating that that lifestyle right now. So getting up, spending some time with God, and also finding some ways to re-engage with people around us or to shift gears from the persons that we re-engaged with all day find some sort of liturgy, some sort of prayer, some sort of practice. When I'm coming up the stairs from the tube, I'm leaving it behind right now. Or like when you're digging for the keys, like you're giving yourself that talk, I can be a fun dad tonight. Like you you find your thing and you work that out. Secret time with God. Third thing, tithing. Tithing means giving at least the first 10% 10 of your income back to God. It's on the same principle of what we're talking about right now with rest. Some of us say, well, I can't afford to do that. That's that's, that's because how we have life structured, we actually can't afford it. But if we're actually living in the faithfulness of God, acknowledging that He owns it all, and He has a responsibility to meet our needs, oh, we can absolutely find time for it. He multiplies the 90% or whatever percent we're left with in the end. So in the same mentality of take time off from the rat race, We actually say, this thing could kill me. I'm actually gonna divest myself of it and I'm gonna put it in places where it will be able to help and and bless other people as well. And listen, when I talk about money with you, if that ever sounds like a power play or a ploy to get more money in this church, then you are more than welcome to talk to the elders of this church. We will find you a church across town that believes in Jesus, loves the local church, and is passionate about the mission of God. And you can take these principles and go plug them in and apply them there. It's not about getting money in here. This is about your heart. And this is about the God of mammon not having a hold on us as a congregation. So it feels like, what was that? Take it somewhere else and do it. Just do it. Mammon's trying to strangulate some of us. It'll loosen his grip. Next, schedule your week. Think about how Jesus would schedule a week. Vision, life, values, inner peace. How does it overlap with my outer values? And then we slow down. Don't worry, I'm almost done talking. We, drop, we, we, we walk, right? We don't jog around people. Slowing down couldn't mean we don't have to huff and puff whenever we pass somebody trying to give it to them one time. Slow down. Jesus got a lot of stuff done too. Can we just slow down? Can we breathe deeply? Can we embrace our limitations? You notice that mentors always walk slow? You sync up with somebody who's just kind of further down the track than you? The guy who's like figured out what you're trying to figure out? The woman who's like doing the thing you're trying to do? Have you always, always noticed there's actually rhythm to them that it seems like we often lack? Finally, single tasking. This was something from the 90s, um, before everything else came into the world. A little bit of a joke? That's fine. I'll keep going. Um, it's a thing where you would do just one thing at a time. So instead of TV, music, and scrolling, maybe just pick one of these and just see if we can create some simplicity to our minds. See if we can actually take the busyness and the compulsivity of the world that we live in and find things, start to find their place. And all of this is, this is what the ancients called a rule of life. Or it's what Jesus called last week in John 15, this is a trellis. This is what you would actually hang the vine on, some rules, some ways of doing it and going at it that would allow things to grow and be fruitful. Let's do this. The word for disciple is a noun. We're sitting in here talking about pace and busyness. Think about this. The word disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament, and it is not used as a verb. It is a noun. Sometimes we get so focused on, I got to be a disciple. I need to go make a disciple. I need to figure out what a disciple is. like what, what, These different things. But think about it. Technically, you can't disciple anybody because disciple is a noun. You can be a disciple. According to this, you either are one or you aren't one. But if we were to get really, really technical with it, you know, somebody walks up to somebody, we pick on Andrew, like walk up to Andrew. It's like, Andrew, who are you discipling right now? That's about the same as saying, Andrew, like, who are you Christianing right now? You know, Christianing. Like, Andrew, who are you believering right now? Andrew, like, who are you following right now? And it's like, well, you, just, you just can't. You either are one and you're growing as one, as you're imitating one, or you're not. And if we think of discipleship as a verb, I'm making a point, I promise. If you think of discipleship as a verb, then you're going to think of discipleship as something that must be done to you. And that will put the onus on everyone else around you, but not on you. So if you think of disciple as a verb, then you'll sit around waiting on it to happen to you passively instead of taking responsibility and doing this yourself. And I'm here for you. This staff team that's growing and really coming together, we're here for you. Elders of this church, we got you. Your community group leaders, here for you. But it is not fair to eventually like walk up to someone, you never discipled me. I I can't. That's you and him stuff. And you're either with him or you're not. You're taking on his lifestyle or you're not. It's a burden your community group leader actually can't carry. You're either doing this noun thing or you're not. So it actually comes to us. Not in some self-expressive individualistic way where we're back where we started, but no, if we, if we decide to follow Jesus, then it's going to come back to us. And we're going to need family around us. You're going to need a staff team around you. You're going to need an elder team looking after you. You're going to need a whole host of people being family to you, and we're going to talk more about that next week but it does come down to us. It's a noun. Is it us or is it not? Right. Jesus was quoting from Jeremiah 16 when he said, come to me. This is what the Lord said. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good, ways is, good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. This is the promise that he's announcing fulfillment of in Matthew 11. But you said we will not walk in it. The promise was, follow the path I give you and you'll have rest for your souls. And since Jeremiah said it, no one was doing it. So Jesus came through to live it himself. And Jesus shows up saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. Think about it. No one loves like this one. Jesus does not love like us. We love until we get betrayed and then loves off. Not Jesus. Jesus continued to the cross despite his betrayal. We love until we're forsaken, but not Jesus. Jesus loved with the forsakenness on Him. We love up to a limit with people in situations, not Jesus. Jesus loves to the end, and He invites you to come. So come to Me, come to Me, come to Me. When you're yoked up with someone who is stronger than you, who bears more of the weight than you, and who knows where you're, knows where the whole thing is going, you're free to walk at His rhythm and pace. So we conclude here. Charles Spurgeon says, "Come." He drives no one away. He calls them to himself. His favorite word is to come. Come unto me. To Jesus himself, we must come by personal trust, not to a doctrine, not to an ordinance, not to a ministry are we to come first, but to a personal savior. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray to him and then we'll sing together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would shape us and form us with it. Father, help us to receive this invitation from our King and Savior to come to him. Father, we need you to be strong and mighty in our lives, so do what you can do, do the only you can do, and form us and shape us, not to look like the pattern, not to look like the way and the weariness of the world around. Father, we pray that you teach us how to walk alongside of your Son, and it means that lots is going to need to change for us, but Father, we thank you that we belong to you. We thank you that you're a good father and you're patient with us. We thank you that you know the way because Jesus is also the truth and the life. So, Father, lead us. I'm gonna sit with you here. I wanna sing. I wanna respond in prayer and worship. So, receive us, God. We pray in Jesus' name.